This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So among our most read stories on the terminal, might we be waiting for the imposition of some new tariffs between the U.S. and China? Trump administration officials have discussed offering a limited trade agreement to China. But as we heard from Doug, there is the back and forth again about what's going on here. Nonetheless, investors continue to watch. Let's set the record straight. Sean Donnan is senior trade reporter at Bloomberg News, contributor to Bloomberg New Economy. He's in our 991 studio in the nation's capital. Henrietta Trays, Director of Economic Policy Research at Veda Partners, on the phone from New Orleans. Uh, Sean, I want to start with you. I feel like, you know, once again, here's something, and then it is walked back by the administration. What do we know? Yeah, so look, uh, what we are hearing from inside the administration is that there are discussions about how they might get out of raising tariffs, especially come December. There's a wave of tariffs that were due to hit a lot of consumer products like smartphones and so on. And there's also looking for a way to kind of net uh, some of the or park some of the wins that they they felt they had in the negotiations with China uh, earlier this year. And they think they can do something on intellectual property with China uh, that would be paired with some agricultural purchases by China. We know the president is that's something that he really wants to see again this morning, uh, tweeting out about that, uh, an expense tweet this morning about some big agricultural purchases coming from China. Uh, At the same time, we know there's a lot of hawks in this administration, also up on Capitol Hill and more broadly here in Washington, uh, who are suspicious of the administration or don't want to see the administration give uh, too much uh, to the Chinese or take the pressure off the Chinese uh, in the name of some interim deal. This, the fact that we're seeing this pushback, the fact that we're seeing this discussion all reflects the incredibly tough lane that Donald Trump has to navigate uh, on this China trade piece. So, Henrietta, help us understand that tough path, because there's a political calculation here for sure. We've got the Democrats coming together tonight to debate their merits and demerits as they want to take on uh, President Trump in the 2020 election. We're seeing more and more political and economic evidence across the country. How much is that weighing on the decision making of the administration and these negotiations? It's such a good question, and that's exactly where we need to focus. I mean, trade is political. It has economic impacts, but it's all driven by politics, as Sean has pointed out, um, as have y'all. I mean, the whole way to sort of track the trade war is to understand what are the parameters that the president can work with. How much could he trade away for Huawei? I would argue not very much. Um, As we saw with uh, the Senate in early 2018, they had unanimous consent to block the president from trading away ZTE, and the only backstop 
protecting him there was that the House was Republican. That's no longer the case. And Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, is making it very clear that he has the votes again to block any trading away of Huawei if the president tries to do so. Uh, He's filed legislation just in the last 48 hours trying to make it clear that he's uh, very focused on export control restrictions and basically boxing the president in. So if China does want to come in and buy, you know, a big chunk of soybeans, I would argue it needs to be quite a bit larger than the amount announced earlier today, some 600,000 tons for the October to December shipment period from the Pacific Northwest. I mean, out of 90 million tons in an average year, that doesn't even come close. I mean, what is that, 0.5% of what China has historically shipped in? So that's not going to move the needle. China is going to need to give quite a bit more if they want some exchange for Huawei or uh, loosening of the export control restrictions we're working on. I do wonder if we're watching like a magician at work because I do wonder if it's like, hey, look over here. Don't look at what's here in my other hand. And I guess my point being that is it really about soybeans or is it about intellectual property? Is that the sticking point that's going on behind the scenes? And what I'm hearing from folks in the know is that trying to get the Chinese to commit to something on paper when it comes to intellectual property, good luck. Sean, what do you hear about that? No, absolutely. So this started as it being about intellectual property. It became about soybeans and so much more. And it became about, uh, it's also lately become about the U.S. manufacturing sector uh, and, and, and where it's going. And, and that is why trade wars are tough uh, and they're complicated. And uh, you start off uh, poking in one place and you end up in a game of whack-a-mole trying to uh, you know, sort out a whole, a whole bunch of other problems. And that's really what we're seeing here. The, the real dilemma that Donald Trump has right now is, is it more politically uh, uh, beneficial to be tough on China and to weather the economic consequences of that? Or is it more politically beneficial to, to make a compromise and to save the economy from a further slowdown, which is really what, what, what economists see developing here? And so, and that gets into your intellectual property versus soybeans. There's a very good argument to be made that the U.S. has needed for a long time to be tougher in its approach to China right. and intellectual property theft. But at the same time, China has responded by hitting your soybean farmers and they are an important political constituency that you got to right. take care of as well. All right. Sean Donnan, we're going to leave it there. Senior trade reporter for Bloomberg and a contributor to Bloomberg New Economy. And Henrietta Trace, director of economic policy research, joining us from Veda Partners, giving away her New Orleans location with that. Y'all, Y'all love to hear it. <laughs> Jason and I both look at each other. Y'all. Someone who watch over me. I love a little Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, the one at Columbia that we were talking about <laughs> earlier in this week? I did get married there on the Columbia go. campus. Um, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Someone to watch over all of us in this world where everything is increasingly digital. We are concerned about security. So driven by the continued rise in consumer data breaches and growing privacy concerns, the state of California passed the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA. It will significantly strengthen privacy in the U.S. when it goes into effect uh, January 1st, 2020. Jason and I, full disclosure, were like, wait, we hadn't heard about this. Let's talk about it because John Summers certainly had. He's vice president and chief technology officer over at Akamai Technologies based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm not quite sure how this went under the radar. We talk so much about 
what the Europeans are doing, right? Because they really, I feel like, have been out in front when it comes to protecting consumers and privacy concerns. But California also often tends to be a leader in this world. Tell us what's going on, what, what this act, this law will do for consumers. Yeah. So this has been around for a while, but it came out, it actually became law in June of last year. And the GDPR, which is the big EU mm-hmm. law that everyone is aware of, or at least somewhat aware of, that was all the noise and the rage. And I think this got passed and everyone was talking about GDPR and they just sort of missed it. Well, now, January 1st, it's going to go live. So what is it? It's substantially similar to the European law with a couple of key differences. One is the GDPR law was you actually had to opt in to programs that you wanted to write. So I want to send you emails. I want to send you coupons. The end user had to opt in. Versus opting out. Which is the California law. Exactly. So what this means is people that are running websites, mobile applications, have to give consumers an explicit way in which they can opt out. They can say, nope, don't want you to keep any of my data. I'll do business with you, but you can't store my data. Or, you know, it's okay to store my data. Just please don't sell it to anyone. Yeah. And one of the key, some of the harder things about it is it like that unsubscribe thing when we don't want it, you know emails, or is it much more front and center at the top of stuff so exactly. it catches all it's of our attention? It's supposed to be front and center. You're supposed to present it. To, it has to be clear and obvious to the user. The whole goals of these laws are really you know to give the consumer choice and control over what happens to their data, and what parts of the data you keep, and what you do with it. Right. So you've been doing this for a while, working around the tech space, very deeply in the tech space, I should say, what's the catalyst that w- where we all of a sudden both are more worried about this and we seem to care and be more actively looking for ways to protect ourselves? So that's a really great question. I, you know, I think about the rise of privacy. You're right, the Europeans led it, but really the rise of privacy is, as it's a real issue that end users do care about. I mean, think about it from a point of end-user conviction. I I don't want to buy beauty products where they do testing with animals. That's an end-user conviction, and they're saying, I won't buy those things. More and more we're seeing that in the data area. 71% of end-users says, I don't want to do business with a company that doesn't take good care of my data. And so that's driving it. Um, And then in terms of the loss of data, the data breaches that we've seen, oh my goodness, in the last couple of years, it's been terrible. So between the users moving in that direction... And all of the data losses, something happened. Yeah, I mean, there's hard evidence, it feels like now, that people aren't taking good, very good care of our data, right? Absolutely right. Every, every few weeks, there's another yeah. announcement of a breach. John, how do we know, though? No offense, but, I mean, everybody in anything is kind of collecting data on all of us Absolutely. every time we go online. So how do I know somebody isn't taking my data, packaging it, selling it? How am I going to know that, to be quite honest, unless something goes awry? That's exactly the point of CCPA. You, as an end user, can send a letter into a company that you do business with, a website that you frequent, and you can say, hey, I need you to tell me all of the data that you hold about me. And the law says you've got 45 days to do it. Wow. So... You know, one or two or three or a handful of those, you could easily imagine someone processing in 45 days. Millions of end users, 
you better have a technology solution to so, that. Okay, no offense, but shameless plug, but this is where you guys come in, right? There's got to be Absolutely. people. I mean, and this is true for the financial community, you know, who have to be now tracking whether it comes to trades and so on and so forth. You need systems in place to make sure you can pull up that data when necessary. Well, that's exactly right. You absolutely need technology and tools to do this, but it really is more than technology and tools. I'll give you an example. You send me a letter and say, hey, I have to compile all of Carol's data that's held in a variety of systems across my organization. So that means I have to go to my email marketing system, I have to go to my loyalty program, I have to go to my call center, and I have to pull that all together. But if I just give you a raw data dump of what all of those systems hold, you're not going to understand that. Right, right. There's got to be a way to sort of... collate it and put it in an understandable form. Five seconds. Will other states follow, do you think? So there are currently a dozen states that have laws out there in some uh, area of preparation. New York does, Massachusetts does, even North Dakota does. There you go seems to be something that's catching on as a consumer. It makes me feel a little bit better. Me too. Uh, John Summers, Vice President and Chief Technology Officer up at Akamai Technologies, based in Cambridge, Mass. And just give me some kind of so Carol Masser rolls her eyes when I go all southern with a guest who uh, comes in. We're talking, no idea. we're talking Tar Heels hoops. We're talking about North Buckhead. We got oh, a wait, lot wait. going oh, on. Somebody's knocking at the door. I think there's some grits for all of yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. If only, if, if only. only, maybe some biscuits as well. Uh, Tony Badikian is here with us. He's managing director, head of global markets for Citizens Bank. He lives now in Boston. Winters are a lot colder there than they are uh, in Chapel Hill or Charlotte or Atlanta. He's also done tours down there. Uh, great to have you with us here in New York City. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right. So what is going on from an investing perspective, from a markets perspective with the trade war right now? Because I feel like we talk so much about it. We talk about the negotiations. We spent some time talking about the political implications earlier in the show. But from an investor perspective, how worried should we be? What should we be doing? Sure. I mean, I think uh, certainly the trade war has added a significant amount of uncertainty kind of across the whole investor spectrum. Um, I think what we're seeing, though, right now is clearly with equities within kind of 1% of their all-time highs, the question is, what is what are investors focusing on currently? Are we focusing on earnings? Are we focusing on the Fed? Are we focusing on how the trade war may impact um, uh, the economy in the U.S. and globally um, negatively? Um, so yes. I think it's encouraging. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. So I think it's encouraging that we're seeing um, equity markets respond, you know, somewhat, uh, at least positively here, kind of overall. Um, we had the ECB um, right. uh, meet this morning. I think kind of widely expected they'd ease uh, was 10 basis points in the deposit rate. Um, uh, and then uh, another 20 billion euro um, monthly in in, um, in additional bond buying stimulus. So I think all those things are relatively kind of positives. Yeah. Um, but the, the trade uncertainty um, is definitely kind of an overhang here. We, had, we did have some positive developments kind of earlier today with the tariffs being extended um, uh, mm-hmm. by the administration. So I think the jury's still out, though. I think there's a lot of work still to do um, uh, to kind of accomplish kind of a full um, resolution uh, mm-hmm. to to the trade war. That's really overhanging, I think, investors' kind of certainty over kind of do we invest for the short term, medium term, or long term? Well, okay, so let's try and answer that. And I bring it up because we had some time um, sat down for a lengthy conversation with James Gorman and Morgan Stanley this week, Jason and myself, and we did ask him about you know do you see any bubbles? You know what do you think of this cycle? You know he pointed out in Australia, you know they've had a very long extended cycle and it can go on 
for longer. Having said that, you've got to invest money, make decisions. So what do you do right now? Sure. I mean, I think at the moment we need to focus on investing in companies that are, are solid, have great balance sheets, um, companies have that have the strongest kind of earnings growth and sectors that have strong earnings growth. I think investors need to be focused hopefully a little less on some of the short-term things that we're seeing in the headlines, um, kind of in particular the China-U.S. trade war. Sure, there is that kind of uncertainty and overhang over investors so kind of mindset specifically you know yeah. in a world where there's a lot of alternative investments out there what sure. do you do yeah i mean i think right now you're seeing a lot of investors are just flying into the us dollar as kind of a flight to capital trade and that's falling into long end fixed income investments which which we're seeing not today but over the last several weeks a big pullback lower in yields a little bit of a pullback higher today yeah. um, mm-hmm. with some of the positive developments um, but i think investors should be focusing on really the long term Term kind of value plays, I think. I mean, I think a lot of sectors have been kind of beaten up, so to speak, in the last several weeks and months um, because of uh, um, some of the banter over the trade war and, and right. some of the negatives coming out of that potentially. Um, but focusing on great earnings um, and focusing on more the long-term investing uh, strategy, I think, is really what investors should be focusing on. But are on. there any sectors in particular that you're finding? Or is it you know more uh, equity versus fixed income? I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's very difficult to be investing in, in long-term fixed income with yields, I think, right. this yeah. low. I Good think luck we're, with that 50 or 100-year ex- bond. Ex- yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, there are certain types of think, institutional investors that do have kind of that um, that demand uh, to invest in the long end of the yield curve um, that have kind of long-term liabilities. But from kind of a, a, a smaller investor standpoint, I think focusing on um, – there, there's just a variety of sectors out there, I think. I mean, you can look at the financials. You can look at the industrials. Um, uh, you can look at technology. I think really broad-based. I think there's a lot of value, it seems, yeah. here, um, assuming – um, that inflation remains, you know, relatively subdued, um, which I think it has been. We did have a little bit higher CPI uh, core print um, this morning. I thought that was surprising. That was a little surprising to investors, and I think one reason why we're seeing yields a little bit higher today. Yeah. Um, but again, equity markets are higher as well, so it's viewing it as kind of okay. All right, we, but then it does beg the question, does the Fed need to be so aggressive when it comes to cutting interest rates? If right. we're starting to finally see some upticks when it comes to inflation, uh, you know, it kind of reopens that debate again. A- absolutely. So I think um, we've got a 20 basis point cut pretty much baked in, I think, at least from a market's perspective yeah, um, for later, later this month. Um, the market also has priced in another ease by the end of the year, um, and I think roughly two eases priced in for 2020. So I think a lot of bad news is essentially priced into the interest rate market here. Um, and so if we start yeah. seeing a little bit of a further rise in wages and inflation data, and um, economic data continues to remain relatively positive, um, uh, employment, for instance, has been relatively relatively yeah. strong. Um, consumer spending has been very, very strong. If those things continue, um, I think the overall markets, the equity markets are going to hold up actually pretty okay. So what about your customers? I mean, as a bank, you know, you're dealing with all sorts of industries, you know, folks who are having to make decisions about their own balance sheets, their own CapEx, all of that. How worried are they about the the market at large and, and sort of the eco-political turmoil out there. Sure. I mean, I think most of our clients are actually thinking more medium to long-term and less so about what's going on with the China-U.S. trade relations kind of in the very, very near term. So willing to commit new money to We've seen this. Absolutely, yeah. Capital expenditure, I think, has has remained relatively strong kind of across the board, um, uh, at least in terms of budgeting and planning for 2020 and beyond. So our our clients, from our client base, we're seeing, you know, relatively, you know, positive reactions about kind of how 
their businesses are currently yeah. um, operating and how they will operate uh, going forward. But certainly discussions have been had um, uh, with our clients, kind of broad-based. But they're not making or they're not sort of asking you to make rather radical decisions in terms of reallocating their investments or, or changing the strategy at all. No. Right now, it's more, I would say, because I mean, our products in particular are about mitigating risk yeah. for our customers. Right, so, right. so with a extremely volatile markets, so our clients are, are more interested in reducing interest rate volatility, yeah. depend, regardless of direction, and the same with currency, regardless of direction, so they can kind of protect um, their future cash flows right. and balance out their balance sheet, so to speak. All right. Great stuff. Tony Badikian is Managing Director, Head of Global Markets at Citizens Bank up there in Beantown, here with us in New York City today. Speak writes this week, there is a quality control nightmare in the pharmaceutical industry. It is the magazine's cover story. Bloomberg News health policy reporter Anna Edney is a, is a part of the team that wrote it. She joins us right now from our bureau in Washington, D.C. Anna, nice to have you here again. I know Jason and I caught up with you earlier this week about the story for our weekend Bloomberg Business Week program on radio and TV. It's an important story. Tell us what's going on, and specifically, let's start with NDMA. What is it? NDMA is a probable carcinogen, um, at least defined that way by the World Health Organization. And what that means is it likely causes cancer in humans, um, but there are no tests that actually show that. There are tests that show it in mice. And it's what's showing up in these blood pressure pills um, that millions of Americans take and that were made in in China as well as in India. Well, and what's so important about this and, and revealing and I dare say, Anna, shocking is the extent to which we, I, I put myself in this category, and I dare say a lot of people uh, across the country don't know where these drugs are coming from. And then when you learn where they're coming from, you are startled about the lack of oversight and the ability to really game the system about the facilities where they're made, et cetera. Tell us what you found along those lines. Yeah, I think a lot of people sort of assume that at the very least the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is really checking their drugs that they're taking um, and even testing them themselves when really that's not the case. What's happening is a lot of um, generic drug makers, very large ones, um, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Mylan, they will um, outsource the um, the making of their their active pharmaceutical ingredients to either other factories or their own factories in China and India. And what will happen is they'll use those active pharmaceutical ingredients to finish the drugs and then send them to Americans. But in a lot of those plants overseas, they're supposed to be doing quality testing. And what's happening is they will do it. Some of the drugs will fail, but instead of throwing those drugs out, they actually just push those results under the rug, retest them until they can get them to pass, or some FDA inspectors think don't retest them at all, just make up results and then send them on to American consumers. Well, okay. So a couple things I just want to point out. And 
there's a couple of statistics that just so stood out for me, Anna, in your story. Um, 90% or all medication prescribed to Americans are generics. At least 80%, as you said, the active pharmaceutical ingredients or APIs for all drugs are made in either India or China. But what's interesting is, too, and I do wonder, you just talked a little bit about what the FDA does. I mean, a lot of what happens with generics, right, or the ingredients coming in from these countries, a lot of it is just based on trust rather than really good QC quality controls in place. That's absolutely right. So the FDA is not a huge agency, and they do have limited resources. So they're doing some inspections of these plants, but those number, the number of surveillance inspections they've done has actually gone down the last couple of years. And so they, what they're really doing is trusting the companies to give them truthful data. And w- what my colleague Susan Burfield and I found was that's actually not the case um, a lot of the time and that even a lot of the companies involved in this recall of blood pressure pills that contained a carcinogen had been warned before um, for doing some of these you know deceptive practices and so the the FDA kind of just keeps allowing them though to to come back to sell drugs in the U.S. Well, and what's interesting, too, is I'm curious, you know, what are you hearing from the FDA? What are you hearing um, from the Chinese uh, company? Um, So when we were reporting this, um, we never really heard much from the Chinese company, Zhejiang Huai, and, you know, they haven't responded again today, which has kind of been their, um, the way they've operated on a lot of this, just trying to kind of stay under the radar The uh, Food and Drug Administration did let us sit down with one of their top uh, officials there, Janet Woodcock, and talk to her about this. Um, And she, you know, told us that they they require data. They, you know, they aren't just trusting the manufacturers, but that's not what we found. And, you know, today so far I haven't heard from the FDA, but they also have kind of, when I've reported on quality issues before, not always responded. All right. Well, it's a really uh, nice piece of reporting, important for sure. Uh, It's the cover story of this week's Bloomberg Business Week. Anna Edney is a healthcare reporter for Bloomberg. She co-authored the story, Carcinogens Have Infiltrated the Generic Drug Supply in the U.S. As we said, the cover of this issue of Bloomberg Business Week on newsstands tomorrow. You can get it on Bloomberg.com and through the Bloomberg Terminal today. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. One of our buds back with us, Jeff Crumpleman, is Chief Investment Strategist and Director of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Joining us on the phone from Cincinnati. JK, how you doing, man? 
Good, Jason. Good to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you back. So what do you make of this market uh, right now? I feel like things have settled down, at least from the volatility that we had in August. Carol was on her boat. And when Carol's on her boat, everything, you know, she said it. Like the market trades off. There's a lot of volatility. There is something that happens when I go away every August. Now she's back and and things are calming a little bit. Are are they calming down because we seem to be getting a little bit better on trade? What, What do you make of what's going on out there? Well, I do think that that definitely has helped, as it looks like, you know, at least it's de-escalated just a little bit. And this has happened repeatedly through the the process. Uh, As you know, we've we've continued to be positive throughout this because we felt like the data was better than feared and folks were just choosing to, you know, speculate that we were moving towards recession. I think as even the data drips out, whether you're talking about employment data, retail sales data. Uh, today we got unemployment claims that were, you know, quite good. And it reinforces the fact that the world's not falling apart. And, gee, maybe on this policy front, you know, things have kind of calmed a little bit. So, yeah, I think it's the combination of factors. All right. So should we be buying into this move up in the equity markets? Are you anticipating that we see – uh, another pullback that could give us some of the names uh, that you like in particular, consumer discretionary technology. You know, what should we be doing right now? So our big mantra is balance. You know, you get uh, different folks that will say defense is the key. Run to defense. And you get another camp that's saying, no, 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 these cyclical stocks are, you know, just it's such great values. And if we get any kind of resolution on trade, um, that they're just going to take off. And our answer, I think, to, to that kind of tug of war is yes. <laughs> so you want to have balance, you want to have some offense, and you want to have some defense at this point. And I will tell you that earlier in the year when we got off to such a good start after that horrible Christmas time, we were tilted uh, more heavily towards the cyclicals, and we huh. benefited from that through April, and we have not backed away from equities in any way, but what we have done is within our equity exposure, just added a little bit of defense and softened that cyclical overweight just a tad. But you want both, um, is what I would tell you. All right, so let's talk some names. You know, we love talking names with you. Uh, BBY, Best Buy, uh, McDonald's, those are, you know, discretionary names. But as you say, like a little bit defensive, at least in the case of uh, McDonald's. Pepsi is another name you like. Uh, Talk to us about those specific picks. And I will note that they all have dividends. They do all have dividends. So we do have a foundation in dividend growth. We're, We're not, we don't think yield is the marvelous thing here. Um, and you don't need high yield right now. 60% of the stocks in the S&P 500 yield more than 10-year Treasury, uh, even though the, you know, the, the average yield's around 2% out there because the Treasury is only at 170. So uh, dividend growth is what we look for is a great signal. And what those, those names that you just highlighted, uh, Best Buy versus McDonald's and Pepsi, that's a little bit of a barbell, if you will, within consumer discretionary itself. It's been a leading sector because the consumer is so strong, but Best Buy is a little more cyclical in nature. We think that they're just executing so well. And electronics, there are certain companies where, you know, you, you can't Amazon in it. You need to come in and, and actually uh, see the product, see the features and installations involved. And so 
Best Buy has actually just done a wonderful way of growing earnings double-digit through an Amazon era uh, because I think uh, execution for management and then and just the product set that they're in. Whereas McDonald's and Pepsi, hey, you know, there's nothing like a low-value menu when you can get it via, you know, DoorDash um, in, a, in a period where people are a little bit concerned and worried and you have a great dividend. And the same thing for Pepsi. They're just executing and showing organic growth. Uh, and yet you have that nice 2.8% dividend yield and double-digit growth in the dividend that feels good. So that's a bit of a barbell just within yeah. that sector. Talk to me about, uh, about Dr. Horton. That's a name you like as well. Uh, you know, a housing company uh, in this sort of market. Talk me through that. Yeah, you know, uh, people kind of scratch their heads sometimes. We've done a couple things within the interest-sensitive area. And Dr. Horton is one, uh, quite frankly, that we we bought more recently. The home builders have shown strength, and part of that is because you have these low rates. Uh, housing affordability has improved, and the consumer is strong. And this is actually a stock that benefits from the lower rates. And as we get again all all up in arms about, oh my God, the yield curve's inverting, the yield curve's inverting, and 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 we have uninverted, by the way. Um, but uh, it's the home builders that benefit from those low rates and the strong spending that you see out there on the part of the, the consumer. So, um, you know, recent ad uh, actually just in, in this environment right now where things are not falling off a cliff and rates are low. One last question, 30 seconds here. Politics, how much is that going to impact maybe some of the news flow, especially when it comes to things like trade? Uh, what do you expect just quickly? Absolutely. I think it's from a psychology standpoint, it's very important. That's why we say balance. We don't want our clients to suffer from whiplash. And so we have these risk-on days followed by risk-off days, and we don't think that's over. So we want defense to buffer on those risk-off days. We want offense because we're a phone call away from G and Trump saying, hey, let's go play some golf and settle this thing. So absolutely, it's out there. Well, from from your lips to, you know, God's ears in terms of that golf game happening, I think everybody uh, would be happy to see that. Jeff Crumpleman, Chief Investment Strategist and Director of Equities out at Mariner Wealth Advisors, joining us as he does on the phone from Cincinnati. Come see us, Jeff. Always good to catch up. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.